Chapter 4 of The Three Friends, A Story of Rugby in the Forties by Arthur Gray Butler. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4 On Water Rats A water rat, that is a normal, well-behaved water rat, has three holes, two of them in the bank just above the waterline, and one on terra firma, the three being connected by winding tunnels passing through a central chamber. Crookedness, combined with bolt holes, to be used in case of floods or other dangers, this is the general principle of water rat's domestic and strategic architecture, and Gordon, who had learnt the system from an old Scotch gamekeeper, imparted it to his friends. It was not necessary to teach Scraggs. He grasped it by intuition, and it was lovely to see him first take a long sniff at the upper hole, which may be called C, and having satisfied himself that the rat was at home, goes successively to holes A and B, and finally place himself in an attitude of attention above the hole nearest to his concealed enemy. Then the game began. Fleming, who was no sportsman, leant against a willow, looking lithe and handsome as a young fawn, while Gordon, from hole C, proceeded to stir up the rat with a long osier, screwing it sidewards and downwards toward the hole where Scraggs was watching. And lastly, O'Brien, armed with a stout stick, watched the other hole to draw the rat back if he bolted there. Thus holes A, B, and C were all guarded. "'Look out, Paddy!' Gordon shouted. "'I can't find him. He's coming your way.' "'Where rat?' cried Paddy, and discharged a thundering whack downward, whereupon the rat, we thought to escape that way from the dreaded Scraggs, retreated once more to his central chamber. "'He's an old un,' said O'Brien. "'You see if he ain't.' Then weapons were interchanged, and O'Brien, lying on his stomach and crying, "'Wish, wish, wish,' screwed away with the osier, through his bolt-hole, driving the rat up to Gordon, who as quickly drove it back again, till at last nothing was left for the poor beast but to try Scraggs. Then a silent flop, followed by a mighty splash, was heard, and Scraggs was seen swimming about the pool, snapping at everything, even at the water, but in vain. He had been caught napping, listening to an approaching footstep. The enemy had escaped. "'Hello,' said a young keeper, suddenly stepping on the scene. "'What's all this about?' "'Rats,' said Gordon, and pointed to one of Scraggs' previous victims. "'Well, I never,' said the keeper, "'and that be Mr. Two's dog, a-narring it out there.' Did he catch him? Yes, caught it as it bolted. He'd have caught another, only heard you coming, said O'Brien, who then explained to the astonished keeper their plan of action. Well, said the keeper at last, you'd be born to it. You'll make first-rate poachers some day, but you oughtn't to be here, gentlemen. And we wouldn't be here, said O'Brien, if there was anything else to do, but confound it, it's so beastly dull this half. No games, no anything. It's as bad as a workhouse. Look here, keeper, try some of that. He produced a pouch full of tobacco, kept to smoke mice, rats, and wasp nests in their season, not to speak of other purposes. The keeper sniffed it, pronounced it raw good stuff, lit his pipe, and they were all soon friends. Then said the keeper, Did any of you young gents ever hear of crayfish? No, not at rugby. Well, this is a first-rate place for him, as nobody knows it but me and if you'd like to have a go at him some day, here's your place. They're just beginning to run, after winter. It's rare sport. O'Brien's eyes gleamed. There was no living thing he would not have hunted, 
he had the chance, and crayfish, they were as good eating as prawns, nearly. He had read about it in somebody's freshwater fishes, so he asked the method of the chase. You takes off your shoes, says the keeper, where the water is a bit shallow and feels along the bank for a hole. Then you perts your finger in the hole, and when you feels a nip, you pull it out. There is a crayfish at the end of it. O'Brien started up. He was off at once to try it, but the keeper stopped him. Stay a bit. If you wants to catch a lot of them, a pocketful, his pockets were about the size of a clothes bag, you get a landing net and lay it down there in the shallows with some bits of raw meat in. Then tie a string to either end and leave it there for a bit. They'll all come to it like young alligators. You'll get a supper of them. And where's the net? cried O'Brien eagerly. I've got the meat. Brought it for old scrags who don't deserve it. No, and shan't have it either. Who missed that rat? Down, sir. And poor scrags whose mouth watered at the sight of the meat. Slunk away ashamed. Well, said the keeper, I knows of a net. Get it, said O'Brien shortly. Don't waste precious time. And proceed it. Scraggs eye him to cut up the meat small. Then on the keeper reappearing, after a few minutes, bring from a cottage where he kept it, a round landing net, they proceeded to set their trap, in which process O'Brien, who went in up to his knees in water, earned the special praises of the keeper. He be a good un, he be, he said, and then after due time of waiting, the net was again drawn out full of black crawling creatures, over which they all, even Fleming, shouted, while Scraggs, who got his nose nipped by one of them, growled, and then after tipping the keeper, home they ran, just in time to get their catch cooked for tea, where they lay like young lobsters, red and luscious, a feast for hungry gods. My gummy wummy, said O'Brien, holding one between his thumb and forefinger, did any of you fellows ever see anything like that for rugby? A dozen fellows of the better sort instantly gathered round them. What are they? was the eager question. Young alligators, said O'Brien, imitating the keeper. Imported direct from the West Indies, all alive, alive, at least they were till lately, he added softly. Bosh, said one. What are they, Flum? Fine young lobsters, said Fleming, entering into the fun, as seen through a microscope, reduced in size, prepared and potted by order of the fine old firm. Humbug, the other cried. What are they, North? Turning to Gordon. You've sense at any rate. Crayfish, said Gordon, shortly. Try one. But where did you catch them? Gordon waved his hand toward the North. Fleming followed, with a graceful sweep eastwards, and O'Brien completed the circle by embracing in both arms the remaining west and south. It was a grand puzzle. Barbie Hill, Church Lawford, Brownsover, or Clifton Brook, which was it? The group of boys stood waiting eagerly for an answer. No, my son, said O'Brien, with his mouth full. You don't catch a fisherman letting the cat out of the bag. He's not such a fool. But here, come round. There's lots for all. And then, over that goodly meal, the cut was forgotten. Old ties of good fellowship reasserted themselves. Gordon told a bright story, not too long, of an otter hunt, which was like rat hunting, only not so exciting, because the dogs did it all. Fleming vowed that after cricket, crayfish catching was the best fun in the world. And Paddy O'Brien, Paddy was grand, he declared that when he left and had made his pile, he would come back to rugby and set up a store for crayfish, all fresh, all our own growth, all alive, 
explode her paste was nothing to them. And when they laughed, he said, Bad luck to you, but I'm serious. And they laughed the more. Only he never let out. Trust a fisherman for that, where their spoil came from, and that secret remaineth the secret unto this day. After this the cut was practically over. To tell the truth, it had long been languishing. The reason for it was so slight. The writing on the wall, the mene tekel, a parson of a vile conspiracy, had disappeared, and the conspirators in their turn were suspected. Mackie, who still called out sneak down Gordon's passage, was told to shut up and got a good kicking for his pains. And when, as Gordon and Fleming came out from getting a construe and twining study one evening, he was heard in one of his loud asides, saying to himself, They'll run the house yet. The whole thing broke down. It was too absurd. One said that Colonel Gordon was about as likely to tell tales as the Duke of Wellington. And when someone asked, Who was it then? O'Brien said he knew, and then taking him aside, told him, solemnly, it was a Russian spy who had been sent over to bust up rugby radicalism. The Tsar was afraid of it. And so, what with jest and what with earnest, the thing was over. Public opinion, which whoso offends is deemed little better than an atheist, veered round to the other side, and even those who were unconverted, feeling that the three would soon be in a position to cut them if they did not take care, kept their suspicions to themselves. After all, they were not going to give up three fellows who soon would be A1 in running, cricket, and football for those beasts up there. So Gordon was restored to favor, and to complete his triumph, Burden, whose life had long hung by a thread, was sent away for a bad case of cabbing and lying, and the land had rest. We will not say how long, certainly not thirty years. Thirty days is a good time to elapse in that long, dull Easter term, when games are few and there is nothing to do without some fresh disturbance. Boys are such restless creatures. They want, as they say, something to do. And Gordon and Fleming, what of them? Well, as Twining said afterwards to his tutor, a young fellow of his college, fresh from Oxford, who had watched the incident with great interest, wishing but fearing to intervene, they were neither of them quite the same after it. Gordon had been unjustly treated, and the iron had entered into his soul. He was more devoted than ever to Fleming, who had stuck by him so faithfully. But he was jealous, fearfully jealous, of all his friends. To his moody, even morbid nature, they seemed all bent on corrupting him, or at all events of appropriating his friendship, while Fleming, who did not wish to be appropriated by anyone, much as he was ashamed of his late weakness, kicked strongly at all restraints upon his liberty. He resented the thought of his indebtedness to Gordon, not yet paid off, and besides he wanted light and color, which he found in lighter society than that of his too gloomy, silent friend when they quarreled, which they did about once a week, Gordon would draw a wondrous picture of a green savage monster-headed being having snakes for hair, who sat gazing intently on a graceful departing figure, which figure was that of Fleming. It looked the image of despondency, and when he had done it, he took out his knife and stabbed the monster, one, two, three times, scowling horribly as he did, and then sat with elbows on the table, his head supported on his hands, and he too looked the very image of despair. But Fleming, meanwhile, was in O'Brien's study, laughing at his jokes, and as he oiled a bat or strung a handle, talking of the coming summer, 
and when O'Brien asked how Gordon was, he said, Oh, poor Alan, he's in the dumps today. Then, when Twining had told his friend, the young tutor, some of the circumstances of this strange friendship, as well as of the late cut, the tutor said to him, looking fixedly on a small bust of Socrates in the corner, Did it ever strike you, Twining, that it is a very good thing at some time of your life to be thoroughly unpopular, to be sent to Coventry, in short? Twining looked surprised, but said, How about Alcibiades, sir, and Hermione? Hm, replied the tutor, but then you know he was half a savage, always mutilating something. Witness his dog's tail. But Socrates, my dear fellow, think of Socrates. Unpopularity, excuse the word, made him what he was, and through him it acted upon Greece, and through Greece on the world. It hardened his outer cuticle. I don't think it has done Gordon good, said Twining. It has soured him. Ah, well, said the tutor. There are exceptions to every rule, of course. But Fleming, he will never forget it. His outer cuticle wanted hardening dreadfully, and when he is, as he will be one day, the idol of the school, this may save him. He will know the value of popularity. And the tutor sighed. He always had known none better what it was to be a school hero, and now with one eye on Twining, the other on his younger favorite, Fleming, perhaps also with an introspective look upon himself, he poured forth his experience and then he added slyly, I should like to make the head of the eleven wear a hair shirt or sit in the stocks once a week on Big Side. It would be a grand thing for him. After all, he is a mortal. In the Romish church, when a monk has preached a great sermon in the morning, they make him lie down at the door of the refectory, and all the monks, with the abbot at their head, tread upon him as they go into dinner. Just to remind him he's immortal. Capital plan. Don't you think so? I should think, sir, he'd get it out of some of them afterwards, if he got a chance. Ah, well, that's a rather mundane view of things. But still, it might happen. Goodbye. End of chapter 4